You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus grapples with the need to go virtual during the pandemic as they carry out their four-decade-long mission of music and activism. We have a program called Rhythm, Reaching You Through Music, which is really focused on Bay Area schools where our associate artistic director comes in with singers, does a performance, talk back, just to provide support, however that may look like for the school and the, and the school's young people. And through it, really, our hope is that we're able to inspire and empower young people to live their authentic lives, to make connections within their school and to not feel alone. I'm Mel Baker, sitting in for Laura Wenis. This is Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org. The San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus has been an institution within the LGBT community since 1978. The chorus was a beacon of hope in the darkest days of the AIDS pandemic with a mission of not only entertaining, but also representing and advocating for the LGBTQ community. In 2017, the chorus took its message of inclusion to some of the most conservative and rural parts of the U.S. in the Lavender Pen Tour. In all that time, the chorus has been around. It's lacked a facility of its own to practice in, but that changed recently when they purchased a building in the Mission District called the National LGBTQ Center for the Arts. But the pandemic has meant the building, like so many spaces today, is empty right now. I'm speaking with the Chorus's Executive Director, Chris Verdugo, to talk about the Chorus's main fundraising concert, Crescendo, coming up on August 17th at 7 p.m. It was going to be performed in a music hall, like all previous concerts. Instead, like so much of our lives today, it will be virtual. Chris, welcome to Civic. So how are you going to hold a virtual concert with dozens of performers? I know my Zoom feed isn't designed for that. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for having me on. And just to clarify a little bit, uh, our crescendo, Voices Rising, is typically our annual gala. Um, and it's, so it's, it's not really a concert, although it is replete with performances if anyone has attended uh, the event before. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's really the, the gala that we're moving over. We have, though, uh, the gala that we're moving onto a virtual platform we have, um, uh, uh, you know, we have had to cancel, like many other arts organizations, like pretty much most of the world, had to cancel our performances uh, um, these past uh, over this past, uh, you know, uh, spring and summer. Um, so the crescendo uh, was an event that was to have taken place uh, earlier this year, and we pushed back the date, and and you know, we we, we pushed it back several times. And uh, we finally sort of reinvented what crescendo means. The, the idea of a gala felt very out of touch with what's happening in our, you know, in, in, in our society at the moment, both from a pandemic, pandemic standpoint, but also from a social justice standpoint. We are both an artist and an activist or- organization. Uh, we tout that. We were, our first performance was on the steps of City Hall, you know, the, the, the evening that Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk were uh, assassinated. Um, so we always sort of wear music and mission, you know, as our badge. And so we reinvented this idea of a gala and decided it's no longer a gala. Let's just park that because 
you know, we, we don't need a gala right now. What we need is to come together to sing, to amplify the voices of our LGBTQ plus community, of our BIPOC communities, of Black queer artists, um, and to, you know, create a host of conversation, you know, and create actionable items for the organizations and for our audience members on how we can continue to support um, um, Black lives. So it took a massive shift and one that we are incredibly proud of. And that harkens back to the beginnings of the Gay Men's Chorus. You were just kind of mentioned that offhand. It started in 78 with people gathering at Everett Middle School on Church Street near uh, the Castro and people coming together. And literally just uh, a couple of weeks after the very first uh, gatherings, that's when um, Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk were assassinated. So talk a little bit about those really early days. This really shows you the depths of connection that SFGMC has to the community. It does. And um, it, interestingly enough, the chorus actually was born out of a desire by the SF Freedom Band to have voices accompany it. So it's kind of interesting that, that the founder of both the Freedom Band and the chorus were one and the same. So it had been in rehearsals for about three weeks. The chorus had been in rehearsals for about three weeks. And interestingly enough, there's a funny story that we tell that they, they were considering what to call themselves. And they had two options before them. One was Men About Town. And the other one was the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. And yeah, Men About Town is funny, considering in 1978 as well. But the fact that they went with the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus in 1978, I think, set the bar and set the expectation for this organization. Uh, because there was a, a, you know, really a stake put in the ground at that moment that said, we are courageous, we are proud, and we will stand before you as the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. And in 1978, to just use that that word, especially to put it in your title, you know, showed a lot of bravery. And so it's sort of intrinsic in the fabric of the city of San Francisco and the San Francisco arts community. Um, and and the chorus has had this most incredible ride. I'm both uh, grateful to be here in this moment with this organization because the work that it has accomplished over the last 42 years. Um, that really from LGBTQ youth, you know, across to the social justice work that we've done and the work that we're doing in schools really is sort of is a, you know, is a through line back to that very moment of, you know, being on the steps of City Hall and raising our voices and literally singing for our lives. And that is the song we sang that was penned by, you know, Holly Neer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, the one and only Holly Neer, right? And, and she penned it in the car. On the, on the way, she flew down and she penned it, that song, in the car on her way to, uh, to City Hall and then just taught it to the masses. And there we were on the steps of City Hall singing it. And as I say, and it can't be said enough that really I think it was in that moment after choosing that name and being in that moment that there was no turning back. We, you know, we had drawn a line in the sand that said, this is who we are. And yes, we're going to sing. But um but we also have a mission, and that is to to really through 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 art, through music, through song, um, change our community and change the world uh, into a more equitable, just you know, uh, into a more equitable, just, loving and caring place. And that's what we have been working toward for the last forty two years. And the music has been the in for that. And you weave the activism within that. It's not like 
you go to a SFGMC concert and it's all some sort of polemic put to music. It's, it's right. entertaining and fun and touching and wonderful. One major event that I go to every year is I never miss the uh, Christmas Eve concerts. That becomes kind mm-hmm. of the way I celebrate Christmas Eve with my husband. And that has a really powerful history that goes back to the darkest days of the AIDS pandemic. It does. Yeah. It goes back to, um, I think that, that, that production is 30 years, over 30 years now. We just celebrate 30 years that, that we've been producing Home for the Holidays at the Castro Theater. Um, it's been that same title for 30 years. It was, it was started back by the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence and the chorus and so many others as a way to provide a space for anyone who couldn't make it back home for the holidays, but more so the fact that we had so many men dying AIDS during that pandemic. And they didn't have families and they didn't have anywhere to go on Christmas Eve. And um, the chorus stepped in to fill that void and said, you know, we're going to create a space for you. And it was a space. It was a safe space. There was no fear, you know, about, you know, coming in and being next to each other. It's very interesting, the parallels that we can draw back to, to that pandemic and this pandemic, you know, um, it started out as one one particular one particular concert performance. Um, and now it's going through three sold out, you know, performances. And though, you know, the, um, the intention why people go now might be different than what it was 30 years ago. In many ways, it's still the same. As you said, you go with your husband, you know, it takes a place of some of the, you know, I I grew up Catholic, so I always went to Christmas Eve mass. And so now for, for for me, who's been accustomed to going to something at midnight for many years or, or Christmas <laughs> Eve, you know, this becomes a whole new way of celebrating, you know, what that means. And again, taking religion out of Christmas Eve, for me, it was never about, it wasn't about the religion, but it was about the family and the friends and the, and the coming together of community. And we get to continue to celebrate that. And I will add that we will We'll be working to do a virtual Christmas Eve event this year. That's on our plan. That particular event became a haven for people to come to the Castro Theater, which almost became kind of like a secular church for the community yeah. in that period of time. In 2017, after the 2016 election, you've been planning on a big international tour where you're going to go around, you know, it's nearly the 40th anniversary of the chorus yeah. and it's going to be this big grand thing. And you changed course in the last minute with the Lavender Pen Tour going to the South. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, we had started to plan for our 40th anniversary, which was actually in 2018. Excuse me. Is that right? 2018? I, I, I will be honest with you. I'm losing sense of timing right now. <laughs> I, I, think, I think COVID has done that for all of us. Time is compressed and endlessly stretched. And where are we and what planet are we on? And right? what day of the week so, is it? And how so, long am I going to be stuck working in my kitchen for all eternity? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it, it was. It was. So um, we were going to celebrate our 40th anniversary uh, by taking actually smaller groups of the chorus and doing an international tour, that way being able to, um, you know, sort of divide and conquer, so to speak. And so um, the 24 hours after the election, our leadership team came together on a phone call and we were all vastly depressed. And um, we just thought, man, we can't go traveling around the world when we know, we know for a fact without, you know, we know simply by this man 
winning the presidency, that we will be contending with, you know, a challenge to our LGBTQ rights, you know, challenges to our trans brothers and sisters. We had, we had no idea at that time when we made that decision what would actually happen over the course of the next three to almost four years now and how devastating it would be. Um, but back to that moment, and it was unanimous, and we just we, we pivoted uh, um, and, and began planning what at first was called the Red State Tour, um, but there's a lot of red states. So <laughs> we reeled yeah. it back a little bit and thought, okay, uh, we're not going to make it to all of them. Let's focus on the ones that we can get to and create a tour that's going to have maximal impact and that can support our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. So that's sort of the advent of the Lavender Pen Tour. Um, we started in Jackson, Mississippi, made our way through Birmingham, Alabama, and then uh, Selma, uh, which in and of itself, you know, especially with John Lewis's passing, has brought so many emotions back up for so many of us. Um, being able to meet, you know, at the same church, uh, the Brown uh, AME Chapel, as well as walk the bridge, uh, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, was, it was life-changing is, is an understatement for all of us. Um, we continued on to Knoxville, Tennessee, then to Greenville, South Carolina, where we... Uh, performed at the First Baptist Church of Greenville. Yet another story, as you might imagine. Yeah. And then we ended the tour in North Carolina. Um, and we chose both Mississippi and North Carolina because those were uh, two of the, the states that had just heinous you know, anti-LGBT legislation, HB uh, 1523. Uh, they couched it as a religious freedom bill, but it was you know just to strip rights away from LGBTQ people. And it did pass three days after it passed and it, it was enacted three days after we actually left Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and of course, North Carolina with HB2, the bathroom bill. Um, so we were very uh, um, conscious about the, the cities that we chose and the impact that we could have in them. And over the course of, what was it, about eight days, we uh, had 25 performances, uh, goodness I was grateful that we had the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir with us, as well as some of our smaller ensembles. So we were once again able to have, you know, multiple presentations throughout the various cities in the South. Um, but that, uh, that, that was truly one of the most, you know, 25 performances in eight days. We traveled by bus. There were six buses. There was 300 of us. Um, it was, you know, extraordinary in every sense of the word. And, and interestingly enough that our intent, I'll back up for a moment, our intention was to go and support our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, which we did and for which they were very appreciative. Um, and we made sure that we raised over $100,000 for those communities uh, throughout the tour. But what we learned, what we brought back was seeing racism alive and well and breathing throughout the South and seeing how our you know, uh, members of our Black community were still having to suffer through that. And it's it, it weighed heavily, I think, on, on most of us. I'm speaking with San Francisco Gay Men Chorus Executive Director, Chris Verduga. There was a documentary made about uh, the chorus's trip called Deep South, and it's been an award-winning documentary. So the concert kind of lives on in this new platform to kind of reach audiences. It does. And, and through the documentary, you're able to grab a glimpse uh, of, you know, of the tour itself and some of the concerts, definitely the music and the interactions that we had. 
uh, 97% of them positive, you know, and a few, you know, a few of them negative. But um, it, it was really a gift from Airbnb. I can't thank them enough. Uh, I was approached by uh, one of the producers at Airbnb, one of the content creators, and they proposed doing this, uh, you know, this idea um, of a documentary. And I thought, this is, this is great. And it's kind of funny. I didn't mention this earlier. But so when we had set out uh, and we had made this declaration that we were doing the Lavender Pen Tour through the South, in our minds, we were going to, uh, we were going to head out in 2018, which would have given us about a year and nine months to properly plan, fundraise, so forth and so on. But upon conversations with organizations and individuals in the South, they said, we need you here. We need this kind of work sooner rather than later. And so um, we accelerated it and went into October 2017, a year earlier. So you can imagine how massive an undertaking, what a heavy lift that was from basically, no, you know, end of November up until the end of September, whatever, nine months, 10 months. Um, but uh, Airbnb thought the same thing. They thought we were doing this <laughs> tour in 2018. I sat down with them and I said, well, funny, you should bring that up. Um, it's actually 2017. And this was in January of 2017. And they said, um, let us get back to you. And within days, they said, we're going to make this work. And so um, their crew and the amazing uh, producer, Bud Johnson, James Good, and of course, our director, also Rachel, our producer, and um, our director, David Charles, just created a beautiful film. And I always, I love what our director says uh, about the film. And he's asked, um, there were so many paths that he could have taken with this documentary and he chose to go down the path of hope. And he said, because in this day and age, sometimes feels like hope is a radical act. Um, and he said, I wanted to make a movie about what is possible. And when you went through the South, what we experienced was that there was much more optimism and hope and and possibility to you know to really bridging uh, those divides uh, you know amongst the, those people who we might think is red people aren't you know the, the idea that concept of you're blue you're red no we're just people we're people having individualized life experiences we've been brought up certain ways and what gets us to move from you know one space to another is that idea of sitting down and hearing someone else's story. We all have a story, right? And I sometimes feel like it sounds a bit cliche-ish, but it's really true. We all have a story. And when we share our story in a, sp in a safe space and in a, in a space where we can allow ourselves to be vulnerable, um, it's hard to deny each other's life experiences. And when we do that, you know, oftentimes what I, you know, what I observe more than not was a movement of people coming closer and understanding and respecting their differences as opposed to, you know, as, as opposed to what the opposite is, right? So um, I think you see that in the film and it gives you hope. And what we learned was there's a lot more positive. There's a lot more, um, and I can rattle on about this as you see, so I'll wrap yeah. it up. There's just a lot of love in the South and a lot of possibility. This kind of ties into all of that. Uh, if you talk to a lot of younger LGBTQ uh, folks and things, they look at, I've had several of them say, oh, the chorus, it's all old gay white men. And there is some truth to that. There is. But I yeah. think the thing that people don't understand is all of the outreach you have, uh, you know, et cetera. Could you talk a little bit about some of that, especially as it concerns in this, in this moment in time, uh, sure. people of color? Happily. Well, it's not all gay white men. 
we now have about 30% of the chorus, which is the highest that it's ever been, identifies uh, as a community of color. Um, so we're very proud of that. And I, myself, uh, as the executive director, am a brown gay man. I'm very proud of it um, and proud that the organization, uh, um, you know, is, is, is growing. Uh, and it's, it's, it's made a commitment to diversity, you know, and equity and representation. Um, so I think that's really important. And, and a lot of the work that we do in school, uh, schools, um, we're able to really showcase, you know, the growing diversity of the chorus. We have a program called Rhythm, Reaching You Through Music, which is really focused on Bay Area schools, where our associate uh, artistic director comes in with singers, um, does a performance. It's sort of a, a you know, a, a performance and a talk back. Um, and they meet with the GSA or QSA uh, students, uh, Career Student Alliance, and, and uh, just to provide support, however that may look like for the school and the and the school's young people. And through it, really, our our hope is that we're able to to inspire and empower young people to live their authentic lives, to make connections within their school, and to not feel alone. Um, and then we do that on a global, uh, excuse me, on a, a national scale with our It Gets Better program which uh, we've had in existence now for about three years. And it is a much smaller group that travels to smaller communities across the country, um, particularly those that have been plagued with some sort of um, teen suicide, um, to really speak about, uh, uh, and, and they're trained, not just as singers, but they're actually uh, trained in this work uh, to speak to communities, to, to meet with uh, young people, and, and uh, to meet with educators um, and, and host these conversations around what's happening in their community, what kind of solutions they can start to create. Uh, and um, it's the, the, the program itself has been in existence for almost a decade now. Um, we've had it for three years and it's collaboration with the It Gets Better Project. Um, and it's incredibly successful. And just in that we see changes happening in those small sometimes rural communities, sometimes Mormon communities, which is just mind-blowing. But, uh, but the change is happening. And, you know, again, we're proud to be, you know, working alongside groups like the It Gets Better Project, um, you know, and InCircle in, in, in Utah. Um, so, yeah, uh, LGBTQ youth uh, is really, um, aside from what we do artistically, uh, that, is, uh, that is equal, the work that we do, uh, the outreach work that we do in that space is equal to the music that we you know, put out in the artistic space. It's that important to the organization because to quote Whitney Houston, which I always do, mm -hmm. the children are our future and they need to feel safe and supported and loved and cared for and know that what's happening on TV right now and that messaging that they're hearing is not real. Like that we can, you know, they are valued, they're loved, they're an incredible part of our society and they truly are the future. Um, so it's, it's, it's inspiring work that we get to do. And I'm grateful that you asked about it. Now, uh, as part of that, you've purchased a building on Valencia street in the mission as a rehearsal and office space. And it's the home for the national LGBTQ center for the arts, which is part of this effort to kind of spread those programs around the country with other courses. Yeah. yeah. But this has got to be terrifying because you, you've invested, you've sunk all of this money and resources into this huge, into this great, beautiful building that used to be the Baha'i center. Art Deco, I mean, it's magnificent, but at the same time, your finances and your fundraising 
must be under tremendous stress. How are you, how are you, how are you dealing with that? What's, this is not a good time to be, uh, to be set up and doing that. No, no. I love your dog barking in the back. That's awesome. Uh, it's the, I love it. Uh, it's, it's the life we have now. Right. So, you know, and, and to that end, you know, we're all going through this simultaneously. So we've made, you know, we've had to make some really tough decisions around finances and sadly around, um, you know, uh, some of our staff, um, we hope it's short term. Uh, and and, and we, we're trying to pivot to a, a virtual space now with our with some of our uh, resident companies who were starting, you know, to really have a presence at the art center um, and bring them online with us um, to continue that relationship as well as showcase other LGBTQ artists and arts organizations until such a time where we're able to come back into the building together. You know, we launched earlier this year, we launched both our capital campaign and our initial programming offerings at the center. Um, and our one of our first things was behind the curtain. And it was our series that we moved online, but it started out as a physical series with the cast of Hamilton. It was fantastic. And that was in early February. And three weeks later, we shut down the building um, and have had since then, no, no significant programming. Um, so it is difficult. I mean, it is really challenging. I'm grateful that we have donors uh, and members who are rising to the occasion and continue to support uh, the organization, as well as, you know, the city and the state who have been so incredibly generous as well. We are getting ready to be ready for that moment when the doors open again and we're able to congregate and we're able to sing to be able to bring San Francisco and really our global audience programming that we've been promising, but the music that they have loved for over 40 years. Let's talk about Crescendo, which is coming up on August 17th at 7 p.m. It can be a virtual event. Tell us a little bit about what is going to be happening then. Sure. Well, as I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, this year's crescendo really has pivoted. It's become that is the word for 2020 pivoted. Instead of being this gala, it is now really more of a celebration of the chorus's work, a celebration of Black queer artists, a celebration of our BIPOC communities, the activism that we all engage in, both independently and collectively, great music, and honoring two fantastic individuals. Ari Getty, who is a, you know, a huge philanthropist and activist in her own right, uh, as well as the one and only star, Billy Porter, who, along with just you know, being an incredible entertainer, has also used his voice since he is, you know, you well, from the very beginning has used his voice, but now his uh, voice has been amplified by his success and he's using it really to move our community forward. Um, and and to engage more of us in the conversation around Black lives and Black queer lives and Black trans lives. So it's it's, it's just going to be a fantastic event. Uh, I'm 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 sure I'm supposed to say that as the executive director, <laughs> but um, but I've actually you know gotten to be behind the scenes as also the executive producer and working with our team, and you know they've just been able to to put together something really dynamic. We are so honored to be showcasing uh, uh, Shia Diamond, uh, who's this incredible black trans singer. Uh, uh, one of her songs, uh, I Am America, is the theme song for the HBO show, We're Here. And uh, she's going to be sharing a little bit of her story as, uh, you know, as, as uh, her life journey 
um, and I don't want to give that away because it's, it's it's hers to tell and it's quite beautiful, uh, as well as performing and performances by Alex Newell, Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir, uh, a new performance that was just added by Billy Porter, as well as, of course, the San Francisco Game and Score. So while it may not, quote unquote, be a concert, I think in many ways it's a concert. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on Civic with us. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And uh, I really do appreciate uh, I really do appreciate you uh, and, and having the opportunity to share our story and where we are currently with the greater San Francisco community. I've been speaking with Chris Verduga, Executive Director of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. I'm Mel Baker. This has been Civic. Civic is a production of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative news organization. Host and reporter, Laura Wenes. Producer and contributor, Mel Baker. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Additional themes from the Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org.